Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse. reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, reading verses 12 through to 21. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await the Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Penny. Lovely. There we go. I'll just make some space here. And thanks, Katie, too. As the, the problem of suffering, eh, perhaps the most complex of all questions, and I'm sure we could just keep looking at that, unpacking. And many of those points that you raise, there could be a lot of time just exploring some of those uh, answers. Uh, yeah, I'm going to stand still now. Okay, I just got to get my. I got to see myself in the mirror. You see. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, make sure I've got my makeup and my, my eyebrows are sitting right. I don't know if you, it must be age, but I have to make sure now my eyebrows are sitting straight. I don't get told otherwise. Hey, look, obviously we've just been mentioned earlier that people are going to see the new movie, so I had to mention it. Top Gun, Maverick. It is relevant to the sermon, okay? I haven't just kind of just made it fit. It really fits. So there's a scene, and this is a spoiler, and especially if you're watching online, uh, this is a spoiler alert, so you may not want to listen to either this or any of what I've got to say, but you may not want to listen to this bit. And same here, ladies, you may not want to hear this bit, but look, it fits with my sermon. Okay, so Maverick, you know, has crash-landed. I'll, I'll be brief, so don't give away too much detail. Crash-landed. He doesn't know where he is. He walks into a, a, a cafe. What do you call them? Diners. That's what you call them, yeah, diners. Okay. Uh, it's helpful to have Americans here, isn't it? You can help me out lots today. Uh, so he walks into a diner and 
Everybody's, you know, he's obviously, this is outback somewhere. Do you have outback in the US? Okay, desert somewhere. Okay, and, and, and so, you know, they don't see new people very often. He walks in and he's wearing his fly suit. He looks like an astronaut, doesn't he? You know, and everybody's silent. He grabs a glass of water. And then he says, you know, the inevitable words, you know, where, you know where am I? You haven't got a clue where he is. And there's this little boy. <laughs> Everyone's silent. And there's this little boy who pops up and says, or, asks, or says, you're on earth. <laughs> or this is earth. It's, it's brilliant. It's one of, the, one of those key funny moments and I've destroyed it for you all. Uh, but there's lots of funny bits in the film. Other is hilarious in places. Okay, look, here's the thing. We tend to think, why do I tell you that? We tend to think of aliens as people from another planet, don't we? You know, UFOs have aliens, you know, they're unidentified flying objects because they have creatures in them. I always find it hilarious how, how these aliens always look so much like us. If we really did evolve, how is it that a creature from another galaxy looks almost like us, you know, two limbs, you know, four limbs? And so anyway, it's not a subject. I just find it bizarre how they're so like us. Anyhow, so we tend to think that aliens are creatures from another planet, but here's a reality. I'm sure you know where this is going. What's our status in this world? What's our status in this world? We're aliens. We are. We are. And that's what we want to look at today. And the issue here is, the issue with us is, is that we've forgotten, we've lost our identity. Morag is right, we are aliens. But we're going to look at it this morning. I bet most of us here, including me, have lived as though we're citizens of this world this last week. Now here's the reality, we forget. We lose or we've lost our identity. Hey, we came here on a spacecraft, okay? We look nothing like the inhabitants but we do so well at making ourselves look like them. We even got hairdos that look like our attire, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we think, the way we act. We're so alike, nobody would know that we're aliens. So let's look at that together. Our heading is this. Aliens, aliens from another realms. Who we are, we're aliens from another realm but our citizenship is in heaven and look an alien is someone who doesn't belong to a country hence citizenship our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the savior from there the lord jesus christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body we're just looking at those last two verses. We're going to finish off chapter 3 today. But, but I need to take you back to the context, 18 and 19, that Penny read for us so nicely, Penny. Thank you. For as I've often told you before, I now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. What do you notice is the calibrating factor? In order to get measurements right, you need to calibrate into something that has the perfect measurement on it. This is an engineering term, okay? What is Paul calibrating 
the level of ungodliness that he witnesses in the world around him, where is he calibrating it from? The cross is the cross. And so can you see how the cross functions? The cross functions as our calibration object, as our standard. Okay, how do you know you're living ungodly? You see, you, you need to know that. We can make it up. We can turn to the law. But I've often said to you, I do not turn to law to know how to live the Christian life. It's not the place that we go for calibration. Where do we go? What is, what is Paul calibrating the, the standard of ungodliness? He's calibrating it to the cross of Christ. That's the standard. And you might think, you know, that's not much of a standard. How do you get a standard from a, a wooden beam, wooden cross, and a man hanging on you? Well, we're going to look at that together. It's the standard by which we know how to live the Christian life. I'll tell you this time and time again. Jesus is the standard for the Christian life, not Moses. And it's Jesus and his cross that is the standard. So look, let's just go back to the citizenship. So we're, uh, verse 20, um, I've highlighted it on the text for you, Greg, just so you know where we are. Our citizenship is in heaven. The first question you've got to be asking yourself, has he got that, you know, you know, why is he saying that? Here's why. Let me define citizenship, and if I've got this incorrect, you, you tell me, but I'm sure this is a quote from the internet. A citizen is a legally recognized subject for national, for national of a state or commonwealth, either native or naturalized. I'll read that again. I didn't read it very well. A citizen is a legally recognized subject for national or state or commonwealth either native or naturalized. And I want to focus on those two words. You can be a citizen of a country two ways. I mean, you probably know this as well as I do. You can be a citizen through natural, naturalization, if I get my diction correct, or by birthright or by being a native. And there's a key difference. And if you live in a country like our friends are here from the US, it matters if you want to get into power. This is where Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to struggle. Okay, because he's a national of Austria, I think, isn't he? But he wanted to be president. You can't be a president, but he was a citizen of America. In America, you can't be president if you're a citizenship by naturalization. That means you move there. You follow the laws. You, you say, yes, you learn the language. You know, and then you became a, a citizen. You cannot, you know, being a citizen by naturalization has lots of negative overtones. Paul mentions one. You know when they were gonna had him when they were gonna you know whip him, you know, had him stretched out. He goes, hey, hey, hang on. Do you realize this is illegal for a Roman citizen? And then he explains, and I'm not a, I haven't bought my citizenship, like you probably have. Not you, Ricky, the guy he was speaking to. Okay. Okay, not like you have. I was born a Roman. Okay? You know, it matters. Citizens, how we gain our citizenship, citizenship matters. And here's something you may think is obscure or wrong. You and I are not citizens of heaven by naturalization. You think we would be because we belong to this world, didn't we? Jesus came to us. He found us. He died for us. He saved us. And he translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That sounds like naturalization, doesn't it? It does. It's not. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, not 
by being transported to it, I don't want to contradict the text of Scripture, Paul says that in Colossians, but there's more to Scripture. You and I are, are citizens of heaven by the most valuable form of citizenship. You are by citizen, by, citizen by birthright. And here's why. I'm going to deal with some complex theology here. Tell me if you agree. You may disagree. Ephesians 1. For he chose us in him, in Jesus. God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world. When did you begin? Mm -hmm. You did. You existed in the mind of God. How long have you existed in the mind of God? Forever. Because here's the thing about God. God never has a brainwave. Never. He never thinks up a new thought. Never. He's never surprised. Do you know, here's the thing, we're learning all the time, aren't we? You know, do you know, God never, ever learns. He never learns. He never acquires new information. He knows everything that is to know about everything. And I mean, Katie dealt with some of that in, in, in there. In the apologetics, this middle knowledge, there is no knowledge. And Jesus says in Luke, and I think he, uh, he may be, you may be getting it from in Luke there, when he talks about uh, the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon. You know, if the gospel that had been preached to the Jews had been preached there, they would have repented in dust and ashes. Which, and Jesus wasn't just guessing, he was making a statement of fact. He was saying, I know, and this is brilliant, okay, I know every single outcome of every single option you've ever had. I know. No matter, no matter how many options you had in any given scenario, Jesus is saying, I know every outcome of every decision that you would have made. I want you to think about every single, every single decision you've ever made. Just take one and say you had ten choices. Jesus knows exactly how each ten would have turned out precisely. He has that kind of information. And here's the thing. Your citizenship is in heaven based on this fact, Christian, that you were born there. You began there. Your origins are from there. So you know when Jeremiah 31.3 says these words, I have loved you. He's talking to the Israelites. But it, it, it moves beyond that in, in the typological sense to the people of God. Okay, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And look, we belittle, you know, I love you forever. It's, it's an absurd, absurd statement because there's no way you can love anybody forever. Not that anybody may want that. Okay, but even if somebody wanted that, then we can't love anybody forever, can we? Because we're not going to be around forever in one sense at least. Okay, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? Okay, it looks... Backwards and forwards. Well, now he looks forwards. How long will God love you for? Forever. Forever. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay? But, but, but he looks backwards. How does he look backwards? There was never a time. There was never been a time when God has not known you and not loved you. Talk about being loved. There's never been a time in all of, 
all of existence, not outside of existence, all of anything, and God has not known you and loved you. And even, it goes even beyond that. John, this is what John says in his gospel. Your birth, said your birth, someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, differs to the births of every other human outside of faith in this world. God puts your birth as something that was, that was instigated not by your mum and dad. Look, there's obviously biology involved, okay? I'm not thick. I'm not that thick, okay? You know, there's, de- there's degrees, you see, Lorraine, okay? Okay, so, okay, yes, your parents are involved, but here's what, here's what John says. It's, it's much deeper than that. For all who received him, Christians, to all who believed in his name, Christians, he gave the right to become children of God, Christian. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or human will. It wasn't about the night that your mom and dad decided to, to biologically get together. Hey, that's a good term for, for the word, isn't it? <laughs> I like that. Biologically get together, okay? He wasn't even coming down to that. But you were born of God. God predetermined your conception. And ensured that the biological activity ensured so that you would exist. That's how far back you go. Hence Jesus could say in John 17 too, in his high priestly prayer, when he's talking about the church, he says, look, they are not of the world. And look how he compares it. And if you're saying, but it doesn't mean that in an eternal sense. Yes, he does, because he says it. Listen, they are not of this world, even as... He's pre- so do you know what that means? You know when we talk about the incarnation and Jesus is, is the only incarnated person ever? It's not true. In a very real sense, we're all incarnated. In other words, we had a history and an existence in God's mind and we came to exist later on earth. So in that sense, well, the reason I've laboured this, I want you to realise that our citizenship in heaven is of the highest standard of the highest value, he's of the best type. Okay, you won't get there as though, you know, look, I don't really belong here, but thank you for the invitation. No, you'll get there, and it'll be like, what is it like when you, when you visit mum and dad? When your kids come? How do they act around your house? They act like they own the place, don't they? When you get to heaven, you won't be as an alien, you'll be like, you going home you'll feel at home you'll know how to conduct yourself you'll be home it's a feel as though you finally got back to mum's place that's what heaven is like so Christian for that reason we ought to feel not at home here. We ought to. You know, I've mentioned you know, Maverick, Top Gun Maverick. That's not really an alien film. Uh, but E.T. is. What was his issue? What was the issue with E.T.? We love E.T. Our kids love E.T. You know, I won't do it because I'm going to humiliate myself. But I can do E.T. really well. Okay? Uh, <laughs> no, you fire me. I'll never get to preach a sermon again. Okay? <laughs> right. But, uh, but, okay, what's his issue? He wants to go home. Yeah, and he doesn't just want to go home. He, 
needs to go home because what's happening to him? He's dying. Hey, you don't belong here. It's worse. It's stronger. You're dying here. You'll die here. This world doesn't suit you. Your, your biological structure, your soul is made in such a way that you cannot continue indefinitely on this planet. You do not. We need to leave. Our citizenship by, by birth is of another planet. And therefore, when someone looks at my life and looks at your life, whether it's on Facebook or in the workplace or out in the world or even here, it should look a little different. You know, when I was at school, there were certain people, uh, maybe I was one of them, I like to think I wasn't, who were a little different. You know? And, and, and they were the ones who always got picked on, didn't they? You know, because they were a little different. Hey, hey, we're meant to be a little different. People are meant to sense when they speak to us that we're from somewhere else. And when people see how we engage in commerce, they should be able to detect there's something different about us. The way we pursue careers is all to be different. The way we handle money should demonstrate something. The way we acquire assets should say something. You know, I asked them, look, this maybe is taking it too far, but I've got a friend in the UK, a consultant surgeon who could earn big bucks. But you know what he used to do? He never used to take private consultations. And that's where the big books are made. He'd refuse to do it. Not only that, he'd buy the cheapest possible car you could have. And he said his colleagues were always asking him, where's your Ferrari? And he was driving a little small box car until he was pathetic. And when he went to his house, there was nothing in there. Oh, it was a nice house in a nice suburb because he was close to his hospital. But that was as far as he went. He never modernised it. He never put any money into it. He, he claims it's because he's being godly, but I know the secret. He's Scottish. <laughs> seriously, seriously. People used to say when he used to turn up to events, he never had a wallet on him. <laughs> okay, but, but the point I'm trying to make is our citizenship is in heaven. And it ought to regulate how we live. More than that, in the way he regulates how we live, is we need to get some of it. The longer you spend away from what you call what is home to you, and even from us, the longer we spend time away from the UK, you know, I'm forgetting the name of people I used to see every day. I'm forgetting how places looked, how circumstances were. You see, the thing about our citizenship, in order for us to be truly passionate about where we belong, what do we need to do regularly? Visit the place. When we gather as a church and the word is opened, we sing and we hear it and it's preached. When we're engaged, do you know, we get, a, we get an experience of that world. We do. When we open the Bible and we engage with these words, we're transported for a moment and we're in another world. When we put a worship song on, you know, I love, you know, you know, just listen to worship songs in my own quiet time, when it, personally, privately. When we put a song on that really engage and helps us really engage with God for a moment, we're in heaven. 
we might as well be in heaven. We're so transported from our reality. So can I encourage you? Spend time there. Think about heaven. You know, be, I'm, you know, be that proverb. You know, that's completely inappropriate. You know, some people are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I've never met anybody like that. <laughs> I find we're all too earthly minded to be of any heavenly good. You know, hey, but be the exception. Be that guy that is so taken up with heaven, so taken up with Jesus, so taken up with the future, that you do become useless here. I'd love to meet that person, but I found the more heavenly minded you are, the better you are for the kingdom. You know, the best members of a church are the ones that are passionate about heaven. You are citizens of another realm. First point Paul makes. I want to, I want to expand and do a bit more exegesis on the next part. I've got, I, I got you know, a bit of time left. I won't tell you how long because you'll time me and have nap me at the end. But I've got a bit of time left. Our second point is this, and I want to try and unpack the text. Fitted. We're fitted for that realm. We're fitted for life in another realm. Okay, And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Okay, Firstly, going back to these verses, Okay, the backdrop, we says that these fit in with 19, 18 and 19, and in right in the middle is the cross. The cross is the backdrop. Okay, so the cross is the calibration by which we can tell someone is living ungodly. So the cross becomes a calibration the other way by which we can tell if someone is living godly. It tells us both, it calibrates both behaviors. I want to show you that. So look, here's a reality about what the cross does. First of all, what the cross does, Romans 6, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching and you have been set free from sin. The obvious, there's an obvious question, rhetorical, I guess. What freed us? The cross. So the cross does what? The cross releases us to re-envisage or re-enter in, re-experience our citizenship. So the cross does. Because prior to that, we were slaves. We lost our identity. We forgot who we were. We were like a prisoner of war who's been so long in a prisoner of war camp who's forgotten where he belongs, where he's from. He's forgotten his homeland. And, and, and prison in some certain conditions can do that to you. What the cross does, it opens our eyes, it releases us, it transforms us, it frees us, and it regulates our lives. Listen to this. Many live as the enemies of the cross, Paul says. Okay, they live poorly. But our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. So he's putting the cross at the center or connecting it to how we live our lives. The enemies of the cross live like this, verse 19. But our citizenship is in heaven. We are for the cross. So therefore, our lives look like this. And here's why. Here's why the cross cross modulate my life and it does and if it's missing it won't modulate my life number one the cross motivates us to pursue holiness paul says may i never boast except in the cross of jesus christ through which the world has been crucified to me and i to the world what does the cross do when we look at him matt and i when we were setting up this morning we we're talking about the cross i said to him i hate carrying the thing across there on my shoulder for me it, it smacks too much of what jesus did and I know my life looks nothing like Jesus's. Okay? So how does the cross 
modulate my conduct, it reminds us of what Jesus went through, of the battle that he did. And as we look at the cross, it modulates my behaviour. When I'm about to do something sinful, the cross reminds us the cost of that sin. There is not a single free sin we ever commit. Everyone goes back to the cross to be dealt with. And so the cross modulates our conduct because as we look upon it, it increasingly challenges us and directs us to live in a manner worthy of that cross. So Paul was saying, the cross, through the cross, he dies to pursue in this world. It's what we call progressive sanctification. You've heard me use these terms. I'm going to use two terms today. Progressive sanctification. The cross progressively sanctifies us in that it increasingly makes us look deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts about how we fall short. He does it like a microscope. You know what it's like at the microscope? I could put my finger, I could look at my finger and I can see so much. I stick my finger under a microwave, microwave. Now, if I put my finger in a microwave, it's going to be gone. Okay? Okay, don't try it. Okay? If I put my, on, under a microscope, I see amazing things. But then I could turn up the microscope or lower the lens, increase the magnification, and then I can see even more, and I can get even closer. And the point I'm making is the closer I get, and this is what's different about creation and man-made objects, because we create things, the deeper I get, what happens? The closer I get, the more detail. Thanks, Des. Yeah, lovely that you, you listen so well. Thank you. The more detail and complexity I see, what, does, what happens in a Christian's life as he measures himself up to a cross, as he's progressing in progressive sanctification? What happens the longer you live, the more you read the Bible, the more you see of Jesus, the more you t- absorb the word, the more you, you get closer to God? What happens? The longer you've been a Christian and the closer you get to Jesus, what happens in regards to you and your sinfulness? Your awareness of it increases. Hey, the longer you've been a Christian, you don't feel more holy. The longer we've been Christian, we feel more unholy. The more we see. It's why I often say repentance is a lifestyle for a Christian because the longer we walk with Jesus and the closer he lets us get to him, it's like someone increasing uh, the, the, the magnitude of a torch. It's like the closer you walk, the bigger torch you get, and the more you see, and the more you realise, and not only just present sins, the more you realise those sins of 20 years ago that you repented of, you haven't repented properly. Because you only repented of that sin from a, from a cursory observation of it, but the closer you get to Jesus, the more detail you see about that sin, and even since you committed 20 years ago, you feel afresh the need to... To confess and repent. Seriously. I said, Lord, I see a little more now. How gross, morally gross that was. And so we live a life of repentance. And the cross motivates that. It's called progressive sanctification. But there's a bit more because we go from progressive sanctification 
There's another form of holiness that the cross does. The cross makes us slowly more into Jesus. And unfortunately, and this is a sad reality, both about congregations I've pastored and about the pastor himself, me, okay, both. The sad thing about progressive, scientific, progressive sanctification is that it's not a smooth upwards curve. Guess what it looks like in real life? You can be a Christian for 50 years and do the most horrendous sins against Jesus. And you can be a Christian for 50 years and hardly, and this is a sad indictment on some of us, we can be a Christian for 50 years and we've hardly moved up in some areas of sanctification. It's shocking sometimes what witnessed from mature Christians and so the second one we want to look at is positional sanctification. This is what the cross also does. The cross also, verse 21, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Instantly. What will Jesus do when he returns to us Instantly. I haven't got a lot of time to unpack this now. My time has run out. So I'm going to be quick. Can you see what he does instantly? He will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. What will he do to me and my sinfulness when he returns? He will instantly or positionally. You see, progressive is I'm making movements towards Jesus. Positional is cheating. Because positional is, come here you. Can you see what the difference is? One is me slowly becoming like Jesus and the other is, there you go, just have it. You're never going to get there anyway, are you? And it's kind of like that. When Jesus returns, he instantly transforms us and it's necessary because here's the reality about heaven. Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. I need to... Uh, oh, never mind. The, uh, the unclean will, will not journey on it. This is heaven. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. He's talking about the highway to heaven. He's talking about heaven. And here's what one reality. Look, let me tell you this, and I'm going to tell myself, you'll never, get, you'll never get into heaven as you are now. Never. Absolutely never. None of us here are ready for heaven. Don't dream and don't pray those silly prayers. Lord, come and take me to heaven. You're not ready. Neither am I. But when he returns... It instantly transforms you into readiness. Let me get some of the detail. As we eagerly wait a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus' return to heaven. He's unsettled. You know when you go somewhere, my kids do when they're eating dinner? I'm forever saying, please sit straight at the table. Because they're always like, like they're going somewhere. Okay? We live the Christian life, and so Jesus is like that in heaven. He's not quite settled because he's coming back. So we're eagerly awaiting a saviour from there, okay? which means, from our perspective, we're waiting for his return. I'm going to come back to that shortly. Who are we waiting for? Yes. Who are we waiting for from heaven? Yes, that's the correct answer. The one he said there. What is it? Saviour. Okay. We're waiting, and it is Jesus, obviously. We're waiting for someone to do what? What's a saviour? We're waiting for someone to do what? To save us. 
That's the point. You're not finished. You're not ready. That what Jesus began on the cross only begun. We're waiting from heaven for someone to come back to truly and ultimately and finally save us, to make us, verse 21, like himself. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and to make us positionally holy, positionally righteous, positionally and ultimately saved. Salvation is a strange concept because we are saved by confessing faith, but we're not properly saved, finally saved. We're waiting for for our Saviour to come back to truly save us from sin by transforming our our bodies into his glorious bodies. I just need to be quicker. He does this by the power that he possesses. Look, verse 21. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And Matthew 28 tells us that he possesses all power. So Jesus, when he returns, will possess all power. And with the power he possesses, ahead of taking us into heaven or moving us to the new world, he will instantly, positionally sanctify us, make us perfectly holy. He will ultimately save us. And the last thing I want to say is this. Here's the whole point of how Paul finishes Philippians 3. Okay, these words. uh, We eagerly await a saviour from there. What's Paul saying? What's he saying that the church is doing? What's his point? What's the church doing? How are they waiting? Yes, eagerly. How are they conducting themselves? You read the the epistles, they all think Jesus is coming today. And guess how they're living? And when you read Paul, you've got to read him through this context. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. He thinks Jesus is coming any day, and so everything he writes is in that context. And so how is he wanting wanting them to live? With the loins girded, like my kids eat dinner, <laughs> you know, like they're about to run off somewhere, you know, because they want, they want to be somewhere else, not at the dinner table. We're to, li- we're to live as though bags packed, you know, ready to go, shoes on, thinking about our destination. It's Formula One today, 10.30, okay? Okay, guess, guess what the drivers are doing it's five minutes before they go in the car. They're playing, they're watching YouTube videos. They're playing Minecraft. Okay? They're they're making sure their eyebrows. They're not, are they? What are they doing? Focused. In fact, some of them, I see them when they they, they try to get interviewed on the grid, they're like, move. They won't even acknowledge the, uh, what do you call the guy who interviews somebody? That person. They won't even acknowledge him. Christian, can you see how our lives are? meant to be we're meant to be people who are single mindedly fixated with Jesus' return and taking us home and it has to, it has to, it has to filter down into every aspect of my life how I conduct myself, how I think, how I plan what I do, where I go we eagerly says Paul await a saviour from there, eagerly. Look, I have some quotes from different theologians. I haven't got time to look at them all, so I'll leave them. I'm going to finish now. Remember, Jesus said these words. We use them at funerals all the time. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back. 
will come back. And so that means the way the citizens of heaven, the native citizens of heaven conduct themselves on earth is regulated daily, hourly, weekly by this expectation. Let me ask you, how, did last week look anything like a person who was anticipating Jesus' return? Maybe not a. Can I challenge us all to live this week in such a way that it looks like, feels like, smells like someone who's anticipating Jesus' return to be airlifted out of this world? Amen. Living Word Bible Church. Teaching the Bible verse by verse.